need to hear your voice afresh to thank you for Stephen Kelly and his kids. We pray you would bring support that you laid on the hearts of people here to support them and give them encouragement both by prayer and by financial assistance. Give them the great hope and faith to do your work. Lord, you use uh, your people, uh, even with all of our weaknesses, um, you use your people to, uh, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And uh, uh, Lord, we thank you for the missionaries um, that you have called uh, 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 to uh, France, to uh, England, and uh, uh, to the Texas-Mexico border that we support in this church. And Lord, we thank you for these prayers that we've lifted up, and we pray, Lord, you would hear these prayers. And, uh, bring forth fruit from uh, the work of their hands and give them encouragement. Lord, we pray for our pastor. We pray, Lord, you would uh, continue to strengthen him and heal him and uh, be now with Dave Dorst as he breaks to us the bread of life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do I dismiss the kids now? Or? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I need a couple uh, volunteers to pass out some flyers. We have, uh, I want to take a little bit of time and talk to you about Nathan Clark George. Um, these flyers are for you to hand out. So maybe let uh, Anna Ruth and David know how many you think you'll hand out. Don't just take them for yourself, one for each family member. Take them because um, you think you know people that you will be able to invite on March 3rd. Um, Nathan Clark George, I met him last summer at General Assembly. As you know, that's where uh, all the PCA pastors and elders uh, go and debate. And so, of course, I was in the bookstore when I didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, he had a little booth set up and his guitar. And so my brother, my twin brother, and I sat down with him and said, hey, if you would play us a few songs. And uh, so my twin brothers actually already booked Nathan, and they had a house concert a few months back, and he said it went great. And so Nathan called me and said, hey, I'll be in the area. Um, you want to put something together? And I thought, you know, this is this is the right time for our church to do something like this. We we have brought people in, but really just on Sunday morning. So I think this is our first opportunity to sponsor a concert, and we're really using this as an outreach um, the tricky part is nobody's ever heard of Nathan Clark George, so you can't exactly tell them that Michael W. Smith is coming. Um, and you've never heard of me either, probably. Um, I've got a few of his albums. I'm going to sing you one of his songs just so you have a little familiarity with what he does. But he uh, he re rewrites a lot of the, I mean, he takes the psalms and sets them to music, um, as well as a number of other songs um, just about his life and about the Lord. Um so we are really excited to do this. If you don't know where the Potomac Station Clubhouse is, as soon as you leave the parking lot, take a right. And when you get up to the top of the hill to the light, the clubhouse is on your left. So what we're going to do is uh, set it up for him to play a concert there Saturday night. we got kind of a special opening act. It'll be kind of fun. The Pharaoh girls. Um, it'll start at 7 uh, till 9.30. And uh, 
the way we're going to use this as an outreach is we're just going to say, hey, listen, anybody from the community, if you want to hear more about Nathan, come tomorrow morning, and he will play in church um, some more. So, And I think he'll take the Sunday school hour as well. Um, we're, we're not going to have an altar call or a big evangelistic push. It's just going to be to get our church out in the community and people coming to that. Uh, we've got the Daily Grind is one of the coffee houses in town. It's at the Outlet Mall. They're going to bring coffee to sell. Uh, free concert, uh, just bring money for his CDs and, and coffee. So could be a really uh, excellent night. Um, the Potomac Station Clubhouse, <laughs> I found out, only seats 93. So I'm not going to lie to you. If uh, if we fill that up, I'm not kicking any of the visitors out. I'm going to probably tap you and say, hey, uh, why don't you go somewhere else? <laughs> Anywhere else. So anyways, um, this is one of his songs. Uh, it's called Not What My Hands Have Done. It's, it's a, a hymn that he kind of put a nice tune to. So, um, yeah, remind me when I'm the fill-in preacher not to do a solo, but uh, next time. Uh, the, the ushers can come forward for this morning's offering and uh, just read the words as, as they go by. and um, It actually works into the passage that I'll be preaching on this morning. save my guilty soul not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole not what I feel or do can give me peace with God not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful love. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest. And set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lips and heart, I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt, 
I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. the God of grace. I trust his truth and light. He calls me his. I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. It is he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. Amen. The children can be dismissed for Children's Church. Follow Dan Pugh, looks like. And if you'd uh, get out your sermon outline or your Bible, Bo White is going to read to this morning's scripture. Well, as Brother Dave transitions from worship leader to bringing us the message this morning, um, please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, uh, verse 41. It's also in the sermon outline in your bulletins. John, chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent them, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as a father's ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Thanks, brother. Okay, now this is really funny. Sermon disappeared, anyone? Todd, did you happen to grab it? Yeah. <laughs> that that'd be good. That'd be good. It's a good thing Dave types out his manuscripts. So if you're looking at the bulletin and you're new and you're wondering, Dr. Silvernail, huh? He looks like he's barely out of college, right? Um, Dave is very sick, and uh, so I got I picked up this manuscript yesterday about four o'clock. So um, I'm gonna do my best here, <laughs> and uh, so I'm ready now. <laughs> so luckily he had put it all together, and uh, he even starts with a music illustration to open. So right up my alley. My daughter subscribed to Radiant Mags. Oh, sorry. Apparently, Sarah and Becca subscribed to a magazine called Radiant. And uh, apparently, it comes to the house while they're away in, at college. So Dave flips through it just to see how it is. And uh, it's not bad, not real good, not, or not real deep, but pretty good nonetheless. That's, what, that's his... Uh, take on this. It's uh, it's targeted to college-age women. and But in the most recent issue, there was an article on the blues guitar singer-songwriter Johnny Lang. And Johnny Lang is a celebrated artist who sings and plays a blend of rock, blues, and soul. Just 26, he's been playing professionally for over 10 years now and has wild fans and critics alike. And if you have never heard him before, you will not have that excuse now. Break a break, break a one night. Is there anybody out there? I've been running this road for the first time. But now Johnny Lang finds himself in the middle of a firestorm of musical criticism. You see, Johnny has apparently committed the artistic sin of becoming a Christian. And his newest album, Turn Around, deals intimately with his conversion and themes of redemption. And not everyone's happy about it. But Lang doesn't seem all that concerned about it. He says, there are a multitude of reasons why people disagree with you or lose respect for you. That could be just because of who you are and what you say. That doesn't mean it necessarily has to do with the Lord or not. So if people are going to lose respect for me or my music for something, I would like it to be for the name of Jesus. It's not that I want that to happen, but if it's going to happen, it might as well be for something good. 
Lang knows that a few years ago, he probably would have shared the dissenting opinions if an artist he liked created an album like this. He grew up to hate Christianity, thanks to a series of experiences that left him with a bitter taste for the people who professed the faith. He says, I grew up most of my life despising Christianity and not wanting anything to do with Jesus. But now Johnny has come to Christ, and it's reflected in his music. But his fans are furious. A quick trip to Amazon's user review section for his new album will clearly demonstrate just how unhappy people are with this change. Review headings read, hated it. Worst album I have ever heard. What happened? And my personal favorite, Johnny Lang abducted by aliens. Now, what causes your biggest fans, the ones who run and buy your album the day it's released, to turn against you and criticize you on the biggest stage they can find? Usually it's simply because you failed to meet their expectations. They want the slow hand blues, the wailing soul, and the searing guitar licks, all preferably without mentioning anything about Jesus. They've come to expect certain things from Johnny Lang, and when he gives them something else, when he challenges them, challenges them with something new and different, they don't like it. And if you're old enough to remember the late 70s of Bob Dylan's conversion, a very similar thing happened to him. I'm glad Johnny Lang isn't too upset by the whole thing. Why this bothers many Christians, I don't know, because criticism is always leveled at followers of Jesus when they don't meet the world's politically correct expectations. After all, Jesus had to deal with the same thing. People challenge Jesus for selfish reasons, and he challenges them right back. And that's exactly what happens in today's passage. This text takes place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, and the crowd is following Jesus in hopes of getting fed again. People have certain expectations of Jesus, and when he's not doing things the way they want, they begin to question him. And they discover that questioning the Christ is not as easy as they think, as simple as it looks, or as convenient as they want. Jesus is giving the crowd answers which they don't expect. Back in John 6.35, Jesus had shocked the crowd with the statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's become so commonplace for us to hear that, but it was shocking to his original audience. And now he not only repeats this claim, but amplifies it with numerous challenges to the crowd. He's going to hit the crowd with some of the hardest teaching of his ministry. And they're not going to like it. And he knows that. So let's see what he says. The first challenge Jesus hits them with is that they will all be taught. They will all be taught. Jesus responds to these questions that are put to him. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You see the verb grumbling. 
They're grumbling because some of the things Jesus says now are hard things. They're difficult things. They're extraordinary things. He says, for example, back in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is a giving on the part of the Father Uh, There is a giving on the part of the Father. There is a coming on the part of men and women. There is a receiving on the part of Jesus Christ. The great theologian John Murray says, this is on the crest of the wave of God's sovereign grace that the free overtures of the gospel break upon the shores of lost humanity. Jesus has two conditions of men and women in mind when he says this. First, he's he's speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to those who have never labored for the bread that endures to eternal life. All they live for is the things of this world. All they live for is that which they can see and handle and touch and taste. That's all they live for. And they think now that they've seen in Jesus someone who will make life a little bit easier for them. And he's saying to them, he's emphasizing to, that, to them, if they're ever going to know this bread that endures to eternal life, that that salvation is a sovereign work of Almighty God. So he's speaking to unbelievers, but he's also speaking to believers. He's speaking to his disciples, and he's reassuring them, giving them confidence. He's saying to them that because salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, We can rest in the assurance that having begun a good work, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Unless there is a work of divine spiritual renewal, none of us would ever come to Christ. And what Jesus is saying to these Jews who are grumbling, you know the greatest thing that you need is to be humbled. The greatest thing that you need is to be brought down in your own estimation of yourselves and your own ability. Because you have to understand this, that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourselves apart from the sovereign grace of Almighty God. You cannot by your own strength come to me. And you can't even enjoy the bread that endures to eternal life apart from the drawing of my Father. Do you see how humbling a message that is? That they've been reduced and reduced and reduced so that they say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's one of the verses from Rock of Ages. But there's another version of that. It goes something like this. Something in my hand I bring. Also of the cross I sing. I've always tried to look my best. Slightly flawed, I still pass the test. God, I'm sure, will not pass me by if I but try and try 
than try. Is that where you are today? You're trying to be good. You're trying to do this, that, and the other. You're coming to church. You're reading your Bible. You belong to all the right associations and clubs. You move in the circle of Christians because you're trying and trying and trying to be good. So that when you come before the bar of the justice of God, he'll look down and see that you've just scrapped by. But Jesus is saying, unless the Father draws you by a sovereign hand, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You see, Jesus is deliberately crushing their pride just as he crushes ours. They're grumbling, and you can understand why they're grumbling. Salvation is absolutely all of grace, or it is nothing at all. In verse 45, Jesus quotes the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah when he says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is letting them know that if they truly know the scriptures, if they're truly listening to God through his word, if they're truly learning from God's word, then the result is inevitable. They will come to him. For it's through the teaching of the word of God, through the word that God draws people to the Savior. As Jesus said back in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Those followers who are faithful, those followers who are available, those followers who are teachable, those are the ones who come to him. Those followers who listen and learn are the ones who believe and obey. And therefore, they're the ones who shall have eternal life. Only those who have been taught by God are drawn by the Father and given to the Son. But this is not what the crowd wants to hear. The crowd wanted to see something. They wanted to see more bread. But the real need was to learn something. And they they needed to learn that it's by the word that we're fed. It's by the word that that we know God, it's by the word that we come to Christ, and it's by the word that they would realize the real bread, the true bread, the bread from heaven, was standing right in front of them. They got exactly what they asked for, to see bread, but because they hadn't been taught by God, they didn't even realize it. And then with an invitation to belief and a warning against unbelief, Jesus brings them to the second challenge. Whoever believes has eternal life. Let's read these verses again because they lead up to the hardest part of Jesus' teaching. Starting in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This was astounding. He confronts them with a challenge to belief and then tells them that he is the bread. Imagine the shock they must have felt when they first heard him say that. Not only do they find it incomprehensible, but he uses it as a challenge to faith, to belief. You want bread? I am the bread. Do you believe this? You want bread that satisfies? I am the living bread that satisfies completely. Can you accept this? You want bread so you will live? I am the bread that will enable you to live forever. Jesus is making it plain here that he is offering himself. He says at the end of verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is a claim that he will repeat again and again in a variety of ways. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in John 11, the Apostle John reports the words of Caiaphas, the high priest. John 11, 50 through 52, he says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From all this, there seems to be no doubt that the Apostle John is talking about Jesus as a substitute. And now I get to use a Greek word. I started Greek two weeks ago, so I get to tell my professor tomorrow that, hey, I preached and used the Greek words. The Greek word hooper is translated for the life of and literally means in place of. When Jesus gives his flesh for the life of the world, he is speaking of his death in the place of sinners. That death, that death that would bring life to his people. But like the Jewish leaders in chapter 2 who thought Jesus was talking about a physical temple when he was talking about himself, and then like Nicodemus in chapter 3 who thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth when he was talking about a spiritual rebirth, and like the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 who thought Jesus was talking about well water when he was talking about living water that quenches the spiritual thirst. So here in chapter 6, the people missed the point. They thought Jesus was talking about physical bread and didn't understand what he was saying. So he continues on and extends the metaphor. He draws out the comparison and he blows them away with the third challenge. Whoever feeds abides in me. Jesus uses stunning words to wake his listeners up. Verse 53, as if he hasn't shocked them enough already. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is the sort of thing that would arouse horror in a pious Jew who wouldn't even eat meat unless the blood had been drained first. It's an incredibly strong statement. Now, a lot of people assume that this text is referring to the Lord's Supper. But he hasn't instituted that yet. The context concerns belief. And he uses different words here than he does in all the passages about the Lord's Supper, where he uses the word body and not the word flesh. The word flesh is used in two ways in the New Testament. One way to signify the incarnation of Christ, as in the God in the flesh. And another way to describe our sinful nature, as in the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. It never uses flesh in talking about the Lord's Supper. Now I think Jesus is illustrating something very important here. Namely, that we must take him into our own lives. This is the same thing that is illustrated by the Lord's Supper, taking Christ into our lives. Both those words in John 6 and the institution of the Lord's Supper use similar words and actions to illustrate the same thing. Receiving Christ by faith. You see, in this teaching in John 6, Jesus is not is not making a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. But this teaching does convey the same truth in words that the Lord's Supper conveys in action. In the words of the English Puritans, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a striking way of saying that the gift of God's Son, the real bread of life, is received by believing through faith in Christ alone. And in actuality, this isn't an uncommon way of speaking. I'm sure you've heard these phrases we devour books, we take in lectures, we drink in music, swallow stories chew over a matter, and eat our own words. What Jesus was saying was something on the order of, just as you take in food and drink, and it becomes a part of you, so also you must receive me, so that I become a part of you, and can give you life. And to emphasize the point, Jesus says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And then Jesus returns to this metaphor of eating and drinking and says in verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The Apostle John delights in this language of abiding and uses the verb some 40 times in this gospel. It's an aspect of Christianity that appeals to John and to which he keeps coming back. It's important that Christians don't simply have a fleeting and momentary contact with Jesus, but that we abide within him, 
just as he abides in us. We don't know what life has in store for us. There may be wonderfully happy experiences and terribly depressing times before us. We have no way of knowing. But we do know that if our faith is in Christ, then we will always be in him. And he will always be in us. John's thought of abiding in Christ is a part of Christianity that we can't do without. I'm going to go off script for a second because I was just convicted. I was, I was reading through this because I sometimes miss abiding in Christ. And uh, the, the visual picture that came to me as I was thinking this through that I, I sometimes feel like an independent contractor who, who touches base with Jesus, gives my report, Ask him to uh, maybe fix all my problems, everybody around me. Um, I check in from time to time. But do I really abide in Christ? Carry through the day in him, knowing that he is in me and working through me. That's a powerful concept that John calls attention to over and over. Then in John 4.34 we read, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus lived to do the will of the Father. Jesus lived by the word of the Father. Jesus was sent to do the work of the Father. It is unthinkable that he should be busy about anything other than his father's business. And only as we begin to live for Christ in the same way that Christ lives for the Father, that we begin to meet the challenges of following the Father's will and following the Father's word. And when we start to do that, following the Father's will by following his word, we begin to experience what real communion with Christ is. Is like. The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. Fellowship speaks of having a relationship. As we feed on the Son by following His will and following His word, we are given life, just as the Son is given life by the Father. We can enter into the same type of relationship with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has with the Father. We're not talking about an acquaintance relationship here, but a deep, lasting, intimate relationship that we cannot live without, literally. Our Savior meant that there must be a deep partaking of Him. But how do we do that? We must live depending on him as the bread of life. James Montgomery Boyce says, Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste and handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. 
So to use Boyce's words, is he substantially real to you? That's what is involved in treating him as the bread of life. This is one of the continental divides in the life of the soul, and this is where, where thousands flounder. John wanted his people to see that Christ is real. Is he real to you? Is he bread? Is he as real as meat and potatoes? What else does bread suggest? Christ is absolutely indispensable. Since bread was the staple of life in those days, it was difficult for people to conceive of life without bread. Is it difficult for us to conceive of life without Christ? What if there were no Christ? How would that change our lives? I cannot conceive of going on living without Christ. He is our bread. He is our all, our everything. Joy Davidman, in her book, Smoke on the Mountain, brilliantly commented on the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. By turning it around to positively read, Thou shalt have me. Is that not what it's all about? You shall have me. I am the bread of life. Partake of me. I want you to have me. I want to be bread to you. What else does bread suggest? A daily partaking. How often do we partake of Christ? Is he more than a hamburger and french fries to us? He wants to give us himself, which demands that we be constantly partaking of him into our lives. I'm fascinated by the fact that in verse 59, suddenly in the telling of this story, John says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Why would Dave be fascinated by that? Well, he's been talking about some of the most difficult concepts like eating his flesh and drinking his blood and so on. And then all of a sudden, John says, do you know he told this in the synagogue at Capernaum? Why does he do that? Because John wants you to understand that is that it's possible to be in a place of worship, in a place where the scriptures are opened up on a regular basis and yet not to understand anything at all about Jesus. You may be very religious. It's possible to be religious. It's possible to be found in the church. It's possible to be found where the gospel is preached and still be unconverted and still not understand what it means to feed upon Christ for eternal life. Jesus finishes this long teaching passage with what is a take it or leave it statement. He sums up what he has said so far in verse 58 where he states, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
He's laid down the challenge to the crowd. You want manna, though it does not satisfy, nor does it give you life. I am offering you myself, living bread which does satisfy and which surely does give you life. It's time to listen and learn and come and believe and feed and live or it's time to leave. You've heard the challenge. What do you say? How will you respond? We need to pray. So take a moment to do that.